All right. Well, you、um, see in your outline, our goal is this hour to consider a complicated case of pornography addiction and how it affects a marriage.、Uh, and I'm going to start by defining what I mean by pornography addiction, so we just are all on the same page about it. Here's my definition: Pornography addiction is an addiction to sexual sin that overtakes a person's life. The person who has embraced pornography views naked people through images or videos, or by fantasizing about them, for their own selfish pleasure. Men and women arouse themselves by viewing someone else's nakedness, and usually also their sexual acts. Nakedness and sex are exposed, selfishness selfishly exploited, and consumed by a bystander who is not the husband or wife of the people involved. Now the word addiction is a loaded term in our culture right now. When we speak of addiction, I'm going to borrow a lot from Ed Welch and David Paulson, who help us think explicitly as Christians when we think about addiction. You know, they talk about voluntary slavery, or desires that run amok, or self-inflicted suffering, all of which help us to begin to、uh, build a bridge from Scripture. Into the nature of what addictions are. In today's world, there are ever-expanding ways to engage in sexual content and become enslaved: sexting, engaging in phone sex, reading about sex in trashy fiction or erotic novels, viewing amni or virtual pornography, and on and on and on the list goes. So, while I'm focused on pornography addictions, much of what I talk about applies to all kinds of troubling sexual sin. So the couple that we're, we want to talk about, the couple we're going to think about, husband's name is Wyatt, the wife's name is Ella, and th- these are the relevant details for you to understand their situation. They've been married for five years.、Uh, they are in their late twenties. Wyatt started struggling with pornography when he was a teenager, so he struggled for about fifteen years by the time I joined into the situation. Uh, he's gone through periods of reprieve, but they've never lasted more than a few months at best. And then he slips again.、Uh, because of he str- because he struggle his struggle has been so long and protracted, he wrestles with the typical defeatist attitude. He doubts that he'll ever get over the addiction, and he doubts that God will ever change him. Ella married Wyatt knowing about the pornography struggle. But many of her girlfriends told her that all the guys struggle with it, so it's perfectly normal. Because he was kind and thoughtful towards her, because he was a hard worker and responsible, because he's a professing believer, because he's always she's always dreamed of marriage and her own family, she went ahead and married him. He's often hidden the problem and lived in shame. Uh, he'll watch porn when he's stressed out at work, or he'll get up in the middle of the night if he can't sleep. He'll slip downstairs to their living room and watch porn. He rarely confesses it to his wife. Rather, more commonly, she simply confronts him, or on occasion she catches him looking at it. So we want to think about a comprehensive war, just the four fronts. I want you to imagine a general plotting out a strategy. To defeat his enemy, 
the general sends in his air force, so the fighter jets, the helicopters, the bombers, to go in advance of the ground troops. He then sends land soldiers to descend on the enemy territory with the full force of their tanks and artillery. But he ignores the seas. He, he knows that the enemy has battleships and submarines, but the general opts to leave out the seas from his strategic plans. How comfortable would you feel if you lived on that land with the general's plans? How confident would you feel about the general's war plans? To win a war, you need a comprehensive battle plan. You can't leave a battlefront like the seas open and exposed. And in fighting pornography addiction within marriage, we need to have a comprehensive plan. So what I lay out for you there is what I think are the four battlefronts. First one is God, so we talk about it as vertical. What is the husband and wife's individual relationship with the Lord like, and what must we do to restore it? Second, marital relationship, the horizontal. How does porn ruin marital unity, and how do we restore unity in marriage? Third, addiction, the addiction itself. Uh, what's the husband's external and internal battle with porn like, and how do we help him fight it? And then fourth, context and history. What's the overall context for their life, and what are the background factors that are relevant to helping us understand who they are? This is why I'm calling it a complicated case of pornography. The four battlefronts offer different angles to view a problem and enter in. And we can't reduce sexual sin to simply quick repentance and a few Bible verses. Life as a whole can be very complicated. And so we need a more comprehensive approach to understand the nature of the problem. So my goal for us in this hour is to spend our time working through these four battlefronts. So first one then, battlefront number one, the God front, the vertical relationship with God. My ideal is to reconcile both the husband and the wife back to God before we make progress with their marriage. Why is that? Well, a right alignment vertically is going to spill over into the horizontal. A good relationship and a good place in in your relationship with the Lord is going to change the nature of your marriage. And so that's why my preference is I'm going to go after the vertical. I'm going to help them think about their relationship with the Lord. A right alignment vertically will spill over and change the nature of the horizontal work in the marriage. It'll only help our cause in trying to restore the marriage. Now, the opposite is also true. There are times when the horizontal work of restoring the marriage helps a husband or wife renew their relationship with the Lord. So, for example, if, the, if there is genuine forgiveness offered, if there are daily graces shown towards each other, that can open up the door of a husband or a wife towards reconciling back with God. Now, when we think about the husband and his reconciliation with God over his sin, Wyatt, our husband, must reconcile with God. His sin is first an offense against the Lord, and pornography, when unaddressed and left to grow like a weed that takes over the garden, can lead him into the pit of hell. A consistent lack of repentance over the long haul is dangerous for the husband's soul. Thus, Wyatt's porn habits and his sinful rebellion against God must be addressed. The eternal state of his soul 
hangs in the balance. So worldly sorrow over his sin causes Wyatt to wallow in guilt and shame and to quickly fall back into his porn problem. Godly sorrow motivates faith-driven repentance where he recognizes the foolishness of his ways and turns to God for help and turns away from his sin. Now, notice, notice what I said. I didn't just say repentance. I said faith-driven repentance. I mean, one of, our, one of our elders has been helping me think through this. You know, I think we often approach our sanctification in terms of Paul's paradigm, Ephesians 4, 22 to 24, all caught up in dealing with sexual sin. It's like we get to put off all the bad stuff. Once that's done, then we can go towards the good stuff. But no, even in the act of repentance, it has to be driven by my faith. Even in putting on the, off the old self, it has to be in my love for Christ that tells me to say no to the sin. Hence the Puritan concept, faith-driven repentance. My faith makes a difference in that. So rather than wallow in a sense of failure, Wyatt must trust that the Lord can actually redeem his marriage. He cannot hide behind his shame, but he has to beg Christ to cover him with a blood-bought righteousness. You also see there that the husband has to renew his gospel affections. All too often, a husband's gospel affections have long since been extinguished under the pressure of that pornography addiction, and his carnal desires now set the agenda for his life. Hope comes when a fire for Christ is lit in the husband's heart. That is the best long-term plan to recover his marriage. Hope comes when a fire for Christ is lit in his heart. He's got to get back into the Word, and I emphasize especially the gospel. so he's staring at Christ on a daily basis. So he can ignite his, reignite his relationship with the Lord. But he should also not self-righteously think he's better than his wife. Rather, he should follow Christ's example of humiliate, humiliation and lonely, lowliness. The gospel will disrupt Wyatt's comfortable, self-serving relationship with pornography and cause him to cast his eyes in a new direction, which is toward a loving God and loving others. Uh, Wyatt will need to be honest with himself and God about the wretched state of his sexual crazed heart. Carnal desires need to be starved out and starved to death and replaced with a greater affection for Christ. We can't reduce pornography simply to just a matter of lust. Selfishness, arrogance, anger, shame, and a number of other motivations cause a husband to act out and move away from his wife. So there's a wider battle going on that's raging in his heart. And the husband has to deal earnestly with all different kinds of issues that seem to contribute to the overall problems in his life. So also, we want to talk about the wife, and the wife needs to turn to God and plead for help. You know, when we enter into this situation, when I entered in, Ella had just caught Wyatt yet again at looking at pornography. And she's hurting at this point. Remember, this is not a a new problem. It's not a new sin for their marriage. It's been a chronic issue. It's been an issue through their entire marriage. So Wyatt's betrayal hurts badly. And so there's a storm of emotions in Ella's heart that we've got to help her begin to deal with. So as a pastor or counselor, you'll come alongside Ella to sort through her troubles 
And your goal is to direct her back to the Lord. She needs an anchor. In the midst of that storm, she needs some kind of anchor to help her in her troubles. And the only adequate refuge is the Lord. If Ella's angry with God or she's doubting the Lord's mercy, she's got to reconcile back with God. Her faith in Christ matters. It determines whether she's going to linger in bitterness or take an initial step forward. Her hurt, her anger, her confusion is just not beyond God's power. So here are her options. She can either turn in on herself or she can beg for Christ's mercy. In the face of another pornography incident, the cross stands a thousand feet in the background and Ella can barely see it. Her heart and her mind are overrun by the folly and the damage that her husband has caused by his sin. Yet the gospel disrupts and disturbs her hopeless disposition and offers light in her dark moments. A bitter and callous heart softens under the brightness and glory of Christ. She needs a refuge. Her husband is not safe, but her Savior is. Ella must turn to her Savior and put her trust in Him. So her prayers are going to take lots of forms. But the essential DNA is something like this. God, this sucks. I hate this. I am really hurting right now. I don't know what to do. And I need your tender mercy right now. Please help me. A gospel mindset directs the wife to look outside of herself for help. So she turns to the Lord for a refuge. Battlefront number two, the marriage front, the horizontal marital relationship. So in any marriage, the most basic building block we're dealing with is a husband and wife's relationship with each other. So two hearts, two worshipers of God interacting with each other. We put a lot of energy into rescuing and rebuilding the relational dynamics between a husband and a wife. One of the goals of marriage is strengthening what I would say is the Genesis 2-4, one flesh dynamic. Now, a lot of evangelicals in, in studying Genesis and talking about marriage throw around this term, one flesh. But if you actually ask people and push them, I don't think many people know what it actually means. <laughs> if, you, if you get someone to, say, to define it for you, it's often vague what they're trying to tell you what it is. Now, we know from 1 Corinthians 6, when Paul quotes Genesis 2.24 again, he's talking about not sleeping with a prostitute. He's talking about intercourse. He's talking about sexual intercourse, about intimacy uh, within the marriage. But, you know, in all kinds of ways, that's the more narrow view, sexual intercourse. The more broad view of thinking of one flesh, it's two lives, two individuals being merged into one. My parenting, my finances, my background, my worldview, my skills, my desires, my hopes, merge into one unit. And so when I, I'm talking with couples, I often ask them, okay, what's the two goals of marriage? And the horizontal goal, we say, is one flesh. But then I think, you know, most of the couples are like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> so, okay, let's translate it. What does that mean? It means unity and oneness. The two shall become one. 
That's what we're talking about. The two shall become one. On the same page. We're the same team. We're, we're, we're now one unit together. We're now working together as partners for the rest of our life. That's what we're talking about. So what does porn do? It rips the oneness apart. It pulls the marriage completely apart. And the key theological idea, it, it, it cuts in half that oneness. It tears the basic fiber of that one flesh dynamic in half. And, and that's what we're fighting against. We're fighting against the division of the one flesh dynamic. Now we're fighting to bring them back into one unit. We want a, a restored sense of unity and oneness within the marriage. That's our overall goal. It's pretty much, I just gave you in, in short form, the goal of what I'm doing in all of my marital counseling. <laughs> Essentially, as we're trying to help couples get through their troubles. Now, in terms of tactics, a typical mistake is to focus just on the horizontal work and lose sight of the vertical. <laughs> it can be so overwhelming, everything you're trying to deal with. And you lose sight of what you need to be, uh, lose sight of everything that they need to, to, to keep in mind as they think about our relationship with the Lord. So that's why I put that as the first battlefront, reconciling and restoring their relationship with God. If you spend all of your time in the horizontal marriage front, but ignore the vertical, you're going to lose the battle. So three parts in dealing with the marriage front. Uh, the self-destructive marital cycle, uh, the husband's movement towards the wife, and the wife's movement towards the husband. So you see there on the handout, I, I have the image there, the, the, the cycle. I was just to describe to you what's going on here. In this self-destructive marital cycle uh, that occurs uh, in, in, in a marriage, it often overruns a marriage where the husband has porn habits. So the husband looks at porn, and then at some point he's either caught or he initiates a confession towards a wife. A wife is understandably hurt by his actions, and every time the husband views porn hereafter, it degrades her trust in her husband. So the wife is hurt, and that hurt inhibits her desire for intimacy with him. How does she take off her clothes and make herself vulnerable all over again for a man who has been looking at other women? The husband's ashamed because of his sin, so he's tempted to hide from his wife. He's discouraged because of the lack of encouragement, lack of intimacy. He also experiences moments of anger and self-righteousness towards her. And rather than accept personal responsibility for her sin, the husband may be tempted to blame others. It's her fault. If she encouraged me, or if we were more intimate, I would be less tempted. Or to, to blame his circumstances. It wouldn't be so bad if my work wasn't so stressful. <coughs> if the husband gives in to his unbelief and self-justifies the sin, he looks at pornography all over again, and that restarts this destructive cycle. Sex is not just about physical intimacy. It is not just about physical intimacy. The very foundation is security, trust, Love, honesty, acceptance. And when a husband looks at pornography, he takes a sledgehammer to those foundations. He needs to keep at the forefront of his mind the fact that his actions has caused his wife's hurt and discouragement. And rather than blame her and self-justify his sin, 
He needs to own that his sin is destroying the marriage. So the gospel solution to this destructive cycle is for the husband and wife to work at the heart issues that are there and start to chase after the Lord. That's why that's the first battlefront. They first got to reconcile with God. <laughs> That'll change everything else we're doing. But then, you know, as we work on that, we also need to deal with the addiction and we need to rebuild their marriage. So I'm going to focus on recovery of the marriage first in the next few minutes. That'll be the second battlefront. And then on the third battlefront, we'll talk about his addiction and think about how we have to help him. Wives' pornography struggles are a serious problem, but God can rebuild their marriage. Otherwise, why am I up here? Why are we doing what we're doing? What use is the gospel if that's not possible? (laughs) But behind every dark sin is an opportunity for the gospel to show that broken marriages can be fully redeemed. So, let's think about, first, the husband's movement towards his wife. Sorry, second. So, this is under the second battlefront. First was the destructive cycle. Second, we're looking at the husband's movement toward the wife. And third, we'll look at the wife's movement toward the husband. So you see the bullet points, there are seven things I have for you, thinking about the husband's movement towards his wife. Key factors in rebuilding the marital relationship. The husband's initial steps in the direction of his wife. First of all, he must be honest about his sin. He needs to have a conversation with a discipler. It could be a pastor or a counselor, a godly man in his church, about the level of detail he should share with his wife, because he needs to, she needs to know at least in broad strokes. I do not think that complete ignorance of the wife about the nature of the problem is good for their marriage. But I don't think she needs to know every single detail every time. And so there's a lot of wisdom involved in understanding what that balance is and thinking through it. And so he has to go to a disciple and talk through this. Then you see a husband must seek, not demand his wife's forgiveness. Condemnation hovers over Wyatt's head as long as Elle has not forgiven him. So he's going to be tempted to demand forgiveness after he confesses. You must forgive me. (laughs) I've confessed and repented. I deserve to be forgiven. (laughs) But his sin has ruptured the marital covenant, and thus he has to be patient with his wife. The husband also has to show his commitment to the marriage through his actions, not his words. The husband's temptation is to make all kinds of promises. I'll never do this again. I'll go to my accountability partners right away. I'll put all the software on my computer and my phone right now. And yet, all of those promises are meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. Why? Because he's been living in deception. He's been lying and hiding. So his words right now are useless. All those promises don't have anything to back them just yet. And so he's got to lead by his actions. He shows his repentance by what he does. So the cliche is true. His actions need to speak louder than his words. So for a while, his actions are either going to scream, I'm committed, I'm patient, I'm trusting Christ, or I am a selfish jerk. What kind of actions show that the husband's committed to rebuilding a marriage? He's attentive to his wife's emotional needs. He's servant-hearted and proactive in helping her tackle the normal demands of life, like chores and cleaning the kitchen, paying the bills. He's loving and thoughtful with the children 
and he executed a plan to fight his pornography addiction without her needing to nag him and getting some kind of plan done. And on and on and on the list goes. The husband should reverse any secrecy by adopting a wholehearted and complete transparency. Sexual sin cohabitates with lying and hiding and secrecy. And so for a while, Wyatt's life needs to be an open book. Total transparency is necessary, and it's a way to help him start earning trust back from his wife. The husband must lead in getting help for their marriage. Marriages do not prosper in isolation. Marriages are most helped in gospel community. A gospel-minded struggler recognizes his daily need for outside help and his inability to rebuild his marriage on his own. So the husband and wife need to evaluate the state of his relationships in his marriage. And turn, he needs to turn to godly men within his congregation to ask for help. But she has to do the same. She can't live in isolation either. So she has to turn to godly women within her congregation and ask for help. Husband must develop and execute a plan of attack, both to fight his sin and grow in faith. He and his wife should scheme about how to cut off access points. They should establish expectations for their marital communication, what to say and what to do when he struggles or after he falls. And they should think together about who should be on their support team. Now, the husband eagerly seeks after the Lord, confesses his sin, serves his wife and children, lives in total transparency, is humble to any counsel and correction. That's his job description in just one sentence. Now, under this second battlefront, the third part, the wife's movement towards her husband. What does that involve? Well, once she's worked through things with the Lord, the wife is in a better position to turn toward her husband. She lets her vertical disposition toward the Lord drive her horizontal work. So eight things you see there in terms of bullet points that trace out things that I think she needs to think about in moving towards her husband. First, the wife should not blame herself for her husband's sin. There's a real temptation to think, if I'd only paid more attention to him, or if I hadn't gained so much weight, or maybe there's something wrong with me. There's all kinds of things that are exposed in a wife's heart. His sin exposes her insecurities. She must fight the temptation to personalize his sin. Her, his pornography habits are not her fault. The wife must not pretend to be a rescuer and attempt to fix the problem. Out of fear that her husband will look at pornography again, she may pressure him to find accountability, to put software on his phone, like put covenant eyes or other things on the devices. But when she does that, she oversteps her bounds and takes responsibility for his sin. And that doesn't leave room for him to take ownership of his sin, which is what he has to do in order to fight this problem. He has to take ownership of his sin and repent of it. Then you see there, the wife should share her anger, pain, and hurt with her husband. When they're ready to talk about hard things, and you know this requires wisdom to decide when that is, but when they're ready to talk about hard things, she needs to hear how his sin, he needs to hear how his sin has damaged their marriage and hurt her. It helps him. It helps him to feel the consequences of his sin and serves as added motivation 
for him to understand what his sin has done to their relationship. The wife should be careful about asking for all the excruciating details of each incident. You know, if she hears all the excruciating details, it rolls around in her mind and heart like the laundry machine that's stuck in the spin cycle. It just keeps rolling and rolling and rolling and rolling. It's really hard to stop. So in, in our house, we're in a typical D.C. townhouse. You know, our, our, the, the, our bedroom, master bedroom's on the second floor, and the laundry room is just on the other side of our, our wall. And so my wife is running laundry. We have seven of us, so there's, there's laundry running all the time, <laughs> the reality of it. And so she, she, right before we're about to go to sleep, she goes in and she stops the laundry machine so we're not listening to the spin cycle for the next hour uh, there. Well, you know, it, it, it's as if that spin cycle will go on and on and on and on because the details, especially if they're graphic, they're hurtful. They're really hard. And what's she going to do? She's going to ruminate on them. And she's going to ruminate them on them more than she meditates on Christ. And that's going to get her into trouble. The wife should be an ally with her husband against his sin and not a cop. The wife's fear and insecurity make her grasp for control. She's deluded if she thinks if she knows enough or she just checks enough times or she just asks enough questions, she can stop her husband from ever stumbling again. She's pretending to be the Holy Spirit. and We know that never goes well. No amount of micromanaging will actually save their marriage. The wife should have a righteous anger that's opposed to her husband's sin, but her role is to be an ally with him against his sin, which means she has to be loving and gracious and supportive of her husband. But note, I don't encourage her to be the sole accountability. You notice what I've been describing but the importance of other people being engaged and involved in helping them through this problem. The wife needs to deal honestly with her sin before God and her husband. In hard conversations about her husband's sin, the wife's sin also emerges. She's tempted to respond to her husband's porn addiction with hatred, bitterness, manipulation, controlling behavior. So she has to repent of her sin and reconcile with God too. But early on in the process, it's really hard for the husband to challenge the wife in her sin. Because his sin provoked the main marital problems. His sin put them in a bad place. So early on, the husband's disposition has to be one of mercy, patience, calm, thoughtfulness, love towards his wife. As she works through the storm of emotions and anger and bitterness and confusion, that she has to get through in order to get to a place of forgiving him. So what does that mean? Then the pastor counselor, the, the disciplers, are the main ones early on that can help the wife with her sin. You're, you're just in a better position to help her to see her sin and to work through it. As the marriage heals and the relationship improves, the husband and wife will recover their ability to talk about her sin in a safe and loving manner. And as a follower of Christ, the wife must forgive her porn-addicted husband. Now, hear me, forgiveness is a process. It is a conscious decision, but it is a process. And, And far too many people, 
because they're believers and they understand forgiveness, feel an obligation to say forgiveness fairly quickly. And yet what I, I run into far too often is a wife who's pronounced forgiveness early on, and yet her heart doesn't reflect that at all. Because you see later on in her frustrations, her fears, her controlling behavior, that she hasn't gotten to a genuine place of forgiveness. Otherwise, forgiveness means she's able to begin to let go. So a holy anger against the evils of pornography is justified, especially when sin explodes like a landmine in their marriage, creating all kinds of shrapnel. If the wife is angry and confused, better for her to take the time she needs to work through forgiveness and get to that place so that when she says, I forgive you, she genuinely means it from the heart. But note that last one, the wife may offer forgiveness, but trust still needs to be rebuilt because of the husband's sin. Let's just say Ella extended forgiveness to her husband. And, uh, And yet, at the same time, I don't presume that she fully trusts him yet. That means forgiveness and trust are not the exact same thing. He has demolished the marriage. Five years of looking at pornography and hiding behind her back and her having to catch him. He's obliterated the trust in the marriage. So she can offer forgiveness, but now trust has to be rebuilt. And that's going to take time. So you just want to, don't want to make the equivalent in your mind. Just because she now forgives him, she's ready to trust him. Oh, no. Now we got to do the hard work. Now we rebuild the building from ground up in the relationship. Okay, let me shift gears again. So we're going to shift into the third battlefront and think now about the addiction. The addict's war against his own sin. Now that we've traced out the marital dynamic, we need to also consider how to deal with the husband's addiction. And to be clear, the marital troubles and the fight against Wyatt's addiction are happening simultaneously. So unlike the first point I made on the battlefront where I want to go after the vertical relationship, everything else is happening simultaneously. So it's not a step process in working through these battlefronts. So like any war, we're fighting on multiple fronts all at one time. This is a brief high-level overview of, uh, of this. I'm just going to hit on a few things. I could have done, I could have done a, a whole day of talks on this, so I'm just going to hit a few highlights that are, are important to understand in terms of the nature of addictions. First, access. First step in fighting porn is being brutal, absolutely brutal, in cutting off access points. This is Jesus in Matthew 5. What do we do? He used graphic, hyperbolic language to describe cutting off an arm and gouging out an eye. That's not passive language. (laughs) That is severe language. Because our Savior is communicating to us the nature of sin and the seriousness of which we must take it. So he's saying, Jesus is saying, You have to be radical in fighting sin. So Wyatt needs to be willing to take radical steps to cut off his sin. 
he, the overall point of cutting off access is to starve the carnal desires that are fundamental to the nature of addiction. Now, I'll often use this word picture in a lot of my writing of just a dragon. So the sinful nature, uh, the flesh, ESV uses flesh, NIV uses sinful nature. Uh, 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 overall, what, what happens when we feed a porn addiction to our flesh? It never gets satisfied. It keeps growing. It grows and grows and grows and grows. And so what am, what am I looking to do? I'm looking to starve it. How do you kill a dragon? You starve it to death. <laughs> and so that's why it's the first step. What we, we, we're brutal about cutting off access. But I think most people are, 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 are going 50 to 70% of the way in cutting off access. They're, they're not taking the brutal steps that are required to, to completely cut off access. So um, Garrett Kell is a good friend. Years ago, we were accountability partners together, on staff together. He's at Del Rey. A pure heart is down in the book, book stall. He's a, he's, a, he's a faithful preacher of God's word. He's talked a lot in, about his own struggles years ago with this. Uh, Garrett was, Garrett was meeting with one of the guys in our church that I've been discipling, uh, met up with him for lunch, and as this young guy confessed his struggle with porn to him, Garrett said, hold, held out the phone and said, you can hold a gun to my head, and, and I can't access porn. Okay, well, that's radical. <laughs> he has gone to such an extreme that he's shut down any possibility of getting anything off of his phone. I don't think most people do that. I actually don't think most people know how to do that. I don't think most people understand. So you know what I've had to do? I have become, and I'm not a techie, but I've had to become an expert in learning to how to shut down a phone in order to help the people I'm discipling. And so if I'm talking to somebody and they say, okay, I get what you mean. I don't know how to do it. Pull out your phone. Okay, I'm going to pull up my chair and let's look at the settings right now. Let's work through it until you and I are both sure we've completely locked this thing down. And so I I think in terms of accountability, that's a step we often miss. (laughs) We even tell them, go do it. Because we know the text. We understand it. We tell them, go do it. But they don't know what they're doing. (laughs) Or maybe in earnestness, they try. Yet if I were to look at it, I would tell you they're 50 to 75% of the way. And how do I know if they fall again? It means they have another access point. If they fall again, they found a way around. Shame. Shame will overrun Wyatt's sense of identity. He hides from his wife rather than moves toward her. Shame's ambiguous experience. Most people don't know what to do with shame. You know, we know it, we're, it, it means embarrassment, but we just don't know what else to do with it. So, you know, I'll, I'll talk to people. A couple of things that we got to understand in terms of how to help people with their shame. Uh, first, you want to think through biblical categories. So four biblical categories that I lay out in terms of shame. And first three come out of Ed Welch's massive primer, Shame Interrupted. You know, I read all the pages. <laughs> it's, 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 it's a really good volume on thinking through shame. And he lays out for us uh, naked and exposed, Genesis 3, dirty and unclean, that's Leviticus 10.10. Um, rejected and outcast, Genesis 16. 
And then I add in, in addition to that, failure or a sense of failure. And that would be Matthew 26, Peter's denial of Christ. So by, 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 doing, by, by holding out these biblical categories, you help people use the biblical lens to begin to understand their shame. You help them begin to see what Scripture has to say about it. Because Scripture has a lot to say about it in, in, in thinking, thinking through it. Then what else do you do? You want to help people to articulate the stories that are entangled with shame. Because if you go through their narrative, there are a lot of stories entangled with shame. And just simply taking the act to bring it to the light is going to begin to help them. Because what's the nature of shame? Hiding. (laughs) What are we called to do? Be people of the light. (laughs) God is light. There's no darkness in him. And therefore, Ephesians 5, we are to be people of the light. We're to walk in the light. Then thirdly, I think you need to teach people an instinct of handling, of responding to doing the opposite of what their shame tells them. A basic instinct you need to train in them. What does shame tell us to do? Hide, run, go away, be in darkness. So I want to teach them to actually do the exact opposite, to learn a basic instinct of not listening to the shame, but trying to go against it. So uh, Jay Stringer t- tells of this, um, in, in, when he talks about shame, uh, this story, he tells a story about um, Discovery Channel and the shark program and an interview they did with a cameraman. And the ca- cameraman for a shark program, <laughs> they asked him, what do you do when a shark's coming at you? And he said, well, I, do, uh, I don't do what the rest of the ocean does. What does the rest of the ocean do? It swims away from the shark. What do I do? I swim at the shark. I do the exact opposite of what the shark, shark expects. Well, that's what I train in people. Do the exact opposite of what the shame is telling you to do. <laughs> now you go at the shark and you punch it in the face. That'll throw the shark off. <laughs> well, that's what you do with the shame. You, you, you do not listen to the shame. So you teach people to turn down the volume on the shame and turn up the more redemptive ways of dealing with it. Learn to do the exact opposite. But the, the most important thing to do with the shame. Turn to Christ who covers our shame. Jesus welcomes the rejected and the outcasts into the family of God and declares he is their king. Just think with me, the most embarrassing moment for the Samaritan woman in John 4 must have been when Jesus brought up her sexual history. (laughs) Now think about it. How unfair is it to have a counseling session with Jesus? (laughs) Because he's omniscient. He knows everything. He knows your whole history already. (laughs) So even before she told him all the details, he knew all of it. (laughs) What an intimate and yet shameful part of her past. And yet Jesus doesn't bring up these details to shame her further. No, he wants her to know that men can never ultimately satisfy her. Only he can. And you can tell the nature of how intimate that conversation was, because what does she do? She shifts it into a theological conversation about worship. And yet here it is, a Jew having a conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well in the middle of the heat of the day 
against all cultural norms. But that's what Jesus does. <laughs> he, he comes to a woman who showed up in the middle of the day so she could avoid everyone. <laughs> to help her to understand, you know, first part of the conversation, living water, <laughs> which she didn't get, so he goes into a much more intimate part of the conversation about her sexual history. Through Christ, the rejected and outcasts are justified and adopted into God's family. Those who are lowly are invited into the giving kingdom of heaven. Glory be to God, right? There is a place in the kingdom for the shameful. There's a place in the kingdom for those who are rejected. There's a place in the kingdom for those who are outcasts and dirty. There is a place in the kingdom for those who don't want to be a part of other people's lives and yet are struggling with this kind of sin. So we hold out Christ and say, Christ welcomes you. Accountability. Uh, We already talked about transparency and importance of men opening up their lives. Individual Christianity, I said yesterday, is an anathema. Well, it applies right here. There's no such thing, and the gospel community means opening up our lives to others. There is a lot of bad accountability out there. I think it contributes a lot to why people struggle. They, they try, you know, earnestly, they try in gospel community. And yet the kind of advice they get, the kind of help they get, is lukewarm at best. <laughs> so what am I looking for in accountability? Honest, frequent, consistent, local, word-centered, and grace-driven. Honest, frequent, consistent, local, word-centered, and grace-driven relationships. I think there's something to image bearers facing image bearers. Let me just take that local category. As I'm talking to someone, and they say, who who are you talking to? Oh, my best friend. Where's your best friend? Oh, well, we were roommates in college. Where'd you go to college? Remember, I'm in D.C. Uh, Oklahoma. (laughs) Is he your main accountability? Yeah, I talk to him every week. Okay, well, don't, don't drop him. I'm glad he knows you really well. Keep those conversations. But why not someone in your own local church? Why not someone you see every week? Why not somebody you go to Bible study with? Why not somebody you sit next to in worship services? Why not somebody you do life with, have dinner, go for jogs, you know, talk about your work? I mean, why not somebody you have to see? Because I think God has designed image bearers facing image bearers to be a key part of inhibiting this kind of sin. So I want you to sit across from me and me to ask the hard question. I want to be able to ask you, did you lie to me this week? What were your idols this week? You know, in what ways did you look at things inappropriately? I want to ask you hard questions. I want you to feel the pressure of coming into a conversation, which is both loving, I'm committed to you for the long haul, but honest. And then heart issues. David Paulson often taught the deeper battle is the war of the heart. We help Wyatt to grow in self-awareness of his heart. Fear, a sense of affirmation, escape, anger. Many will be ignorant of the deeper issues of the heart. To see true heart change in Wyatt's life, we don't settle for cutting off access and accountability. Otherwise, all we've done is set a wall around their sexually crazed heart. But 
we've not done the deeper work of destroying the appetite. So I do believe in fighting the battle of access. Getting rid of access starves the dragon. And yet that doesn't win the war. <laughs> there's, there, there's, an, there's a deeper desire and appetite that drives this kind of addiction. And so that's why we ask the deeper questions, because we're going after that appetite. We want to help them work through that. Examples of heart issues, escaping stress, pain and dis- disappointment, looking for a sense of affirmation, looking for adventure in a boring Christian life, anger and bitter at God for not giving you sex or a spouse, and on and on and on the list goes. I think the most significant heart issue is faith and unbelief. Behind all the exposed heart issues is momentary atheism. It's my category of functional theology. You know, what do I mean by functional theology? We all have a confessional theology because we're Christians, so we understand what the Bible tells us to do, the principles that are there, and how we're supposed to live by it. But we often walk around with functional theologies, worldly or unbiblical ways that we think about life, that rearrange how we do things. Momentary atheism is my doubting God's goodness, His sovereignty, or even His ability to change me. You see that often in a defeatist attitude, where if you dig down, you think, at the bottom of that is them thinking, God's done with me. <laughs> he doesn't care. That's why I've been struggling with it for 15 years. Look at the evidence of my life. He must not care anymore because it hasn't changed. White intellectually knows what's true, but functionally he's given up on God. So I've got to recognize that there are also interconnections There are always interconnections at the root of a tree. So, you know, one root might be the porn struggles, but another root is the anger that he has at his wife and his kids. So if I spend all my time just on the porn struggles and never deal with the anger, I'm not helping him in a way that gives us a full-orbed, holistic view of dealing with the person. And so I want to help him with the anger, too. And you know what? If we get progress in the anger... It's just like a stone thrown into a lake. There are ripples in his heart. So we deal with all the roots in the tree and recognize the interconnections that sin has in a person's heart. And then you see they're embodied. Wyatt has struggled with this for 15 years. So the longer the struggle, the more ingrained it becomes. Now, a lot, a lot of evangelicals are scared to venture into this territory because the world is all about, like, embodied biology. It's all about brain science. And what we carelessly do is then throw it all out. And yet, what is our theology? We're embodied souls. So the longer the struggle, the more it has become a part of his wiring. It's changed the nature of his brain. It's changed how he functions. And yet, biological changes are not beyond God's supernatural power. Grace can change anything. There's no biology beyond God. There's no brain change beyond God. God can do whatever He wants. And so He can supernaturally change Wyatt and help him to be redeemed. That that is why we're fighting this hard, to help him to see the grace of God in a situation like that. So 
both the grace of God and then Wyatt's obedience to what God asks of him can change this over the course of time. And yet, you know, if you think of a ship, if you think of a cruise ship, what kind of turn does a cruise ship make? Yeah, it's a wide turn, right? A 180-degree turn is a wide turn in the water versus a little tugboat can do a pretty quick flip and just head the next direction. Well, the longer the struggle, the larger the turn because the more ingrained it is. And we're just trying to be realistic in terms of what the changes are within them. So God, God could do anything. And yet, humanly speaking, more realistically, you know, I'm in the trenches with guys. And, uh, you know, there are guys I'm in with not just one year or two years or three years. You know, guys who are at the tail end of the trajectory. So you know what sanctification looks like? It's not a straight X, Y line. <laughs> it's more like a stock market chart. <laughs> here we go. A good day. Oh, my gosh. Oh, here we are. Oh, look at that. Oh, here we are. Oh, man, here's things. And yet, Philippians 1, 6, I know the promise that in the end, we're going to be on this end of the chart, <laughs> especially when we get to glory. <laughs> and, yet, and yet, there are going to be good days and bad days as we're fighting this. So I've been in the trench with some guys, especially the guys who have fought it for a long time, and I'm coming in, and if he struggled with it, because I have guys who show up in their 20s and 30s, and now the iPhone generation, they started watching it when they were in elementary school. So now we're talking 15 or 20 years in the battle when they walk in the door. So it's going to be a long turn, not just weeks or months, sometimes years before we get to that other end. But that's where you just got to stick with it and, 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 and believe that this turn can happen. Now, you got to adjust your expectations. you got to help them adjust their expectations because there is no Burger King quick fix. <laughs> we just For sanctification, we got to be in it for the long haul. <laughs> We've got to be patient as we're working through this. And then the last battlefront, number four the context and background. So as, as we understand their, their context of their life, we're going to ask all kinds of things, family of origin, work situations, family they grew up in, ethnic factors, significant life events, and on and on it goes. But I want to zero in on personal history. I, I, I think a husband and wife, as they're two actors on a stage, we have to understand not just what they do at the front of the stage as two actors, we understand the backdrop of their life. What's the most significant life experiences that shape their hearts and define their functional theology? You know, we dealt with Wyatt and Ella's personal relationship with God, with their marital relationship, with the war in their hearts. But what reasons have shown up in their life that complicate this situation? So one of the privileges of being in a young congregation is that we do 25 to 30 weddings a year. (laughs) I mean, we just do a lot of weddings. And, uh, and, you know, I want you to picture with me, if I had had enough time, I'd have done a slide about this. Um, picture the couple on the platform with the pastor and the best man, the maid of honor, standing there. What you don't see as they start marriage, as Wyatt and Ella started marriage, is all the baggage that they brought with them. <laughs> if you had x-ray vision, you see all the suitcases surrounding them on, on, on that platform. You know, Wyatt walked in with a suitcase full of uh, a 15-year history of pornography. No, at the point he saw me, it was 15 years. The point they got married was 10 years. So, you know, 
You got to believe that significant baggage he's walking in. Well, Ella's got baggage too. Actually, we go into Ella's history. You know, in, in Ella's case, with a, with a father that abandoned her early on, Ella lived with a fear that when her, whenever her husband was late at work, that there was something up. <laughs> whenever he had a long work weekend, not paying attention, feeling like there's something wrong. <laughs> but you can't blame her. I mean, she grew up with a single mom. <laughs> she grew up with a dad that had abandoned her. And so her living fear, which I call the fear of abandonment, was that her husband would do the same thing. So plastered on that backdrop is the words fear of abandonment. So in the moment that Wyatt acts out and looks at pornography, it is his sin that is causing the problem. But go a few steps deeper into her heart, and when Wyatt acts out in pornography, you know what's standing behind him? It's his father-in-law's sin. (laughs) His father-in-law is standing back there right on the background. And his foolishness has now affected Wyatt's marriage. So, Ella would have panic attacks at different points. And I didn't get it. At first, I didn't get it until I came to realize, oh, you're not only taking the hurt and the pain and the confusion, it's ramping up into absolute panic because you're scared he's going to, why it's going to turn into your dad. So the, that, that, that backdrop, the fear of abandonment, was like in big letters, in a 150-point font, bold and red, screaming like, he's going to be just like your dad. That was the height of her moment of panic. And I had to help her see, he's not your dad. We're not going to end up there in fighting it. Now, interestingly, that's her baggage. And this is his baggage. And yet, if you looked at the platform, they both brought up 10 suitcases. <laughs> that's what makes it more complicated. There's a lot that they're carrying into their marriage that we got to deal with because it's just reality in terms of how we're facing up to the problem. So the gospel is the good news that Jesus died for us. He died so that people can be reconciled back to God, that, that the shameful can be redeemed, that the addicted can get over this, that marriages can be restored. Why are we fighting so hard? Because we believe that the gospel can restore a marriage just like this. So I want you to go away with that in mind. God can do anything. This marriage isn't beyond him. He can do anything to rescue a marriage. What a privilege it is to be on the front lines to see couples' lives transformed. So that's the hope I want you to walk away with, that the gospel can redeem and resurrect a marriage like this. Although it's broken down, the building is shattered, what does God often do? He takes the foundations and builds it from the bottom right back up to help a couple be stronger even after all this is done. So that's basically what I wanted to say uh, to you all. You'll see, they mentioned, you know, some of you will be frustrated with me because I didn't cover everything you wanted and there are situations you have in mind. 
and I didn't answer all your questions. Well, that's why I write books. <laughs> so there's 500 pages between the two books <laughs> for you to, to think about, like going and reading more. Rescue Plan thinks about the, the, the uh, what, when, and why. Particularly useful will be the four A's in the moment. Why does someone act out? What are the factors at play? Uh, and then uh, the, the rising tide, as I'm calling it, uh, which is women struggling with pornography. So baby boomers don't struggle. But you got to believe the younger generation that's raised on, the, on technology, as they hit as a tidal wave in, in our churches, that is just going to be a new game <laughs> in terms of that. So we deal with women in dealing with this struggle also. And then the largest section I think you're ever going to find on the issue of masturbation, which is the younger stepchild of this issue that nobody ever talks about <laughs> in that regard. And then we deal with dating because I couldn't find a chapter on dating and how a girlfriend has to deal with this, marriage, singleness, and then the other chapter that Jonathan did a really good job on, on on teenagers, how to help parents think about how to help a teen. That's rescue plan. Rescue skills is now if you have the what, when, and why, now we're going to do the how. 22 skills to get in the trench and what you need to do as a discipler. So, the questions you need to ask, you know, how to come alongside someone whose conscience is now annihilated. How do you work with a heart overrun with the desires? How do you deal with someone's sense of sexuality and help them understand what God's beauty is intended in sexuality? Uh, what do you do with someone who is weary and, and, and worn out by this because it's been years of a battle? And lots more are in there. So you can, you, there's a few in the bookstore. You can get them on Amazon, either one of those. And then after you read it, I'd love you to email me. You should feel free to have a dialogue with me. I'd love your feedback. Or if it doesn't address a specific situation, then Drew, you reach out to me. I have this kind of dialogue all the time with pastors around the country about things that they're working through and situations they get stuck in. So it's, it's time for us to end. We're at 1145, so let me pray. And then I'll stay up here for as long as needed. If you had questions you didn't get to ask, feel free to come up afterwards. So let's pray together.